And we're live with our 168th episode of Absolute AppSec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter, joined by my co-host Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. Uh, we're running a couple minutes behind on, our, on the live show, but, you know, technical difficulties. Computers are hard. We're happy to be back with another episode we missed last week. Um, and uh, we were just off last week. Uh, but I did want to push uh, Locomoco Sec, right? Like Omaha, we had the training at KernelCon a couple weeks ago. Went great. It was awesome to see people in person again. We have Locomoco Sec that is scheduled. Um, some, you know, pie in the sky place out in the ocean somewhere on an island that apparently we're going to. So um, join us there. We're excited to to be there, right? These trainings um, at these conferences are better priced right than some of the larger conferences so if you want to catch us this is these would be the places to do it um outside of the fact that you do have to travel to you know honolulu or waikiki beach or something like that to see us shucks shucks would be the worst thing in the world right um i'm trying to think what else can um there's been a lot going on in the news and I know for you personally at work and for me at work. Right. But um, I don't, I don't think there's any other announcements right now. We do have a couple other conferences that we're targeting for training and for speaking. Um, if you are running a conference and you're interested in having us train, reach out, let us know, or, you know, internally for your organization. Yeah. I don't know, Ken, what else? I don't know, man. I'm getting my bearings back. I've been on the nomadic lifestyle for three weeks straight now. So um, I, I, as you can see, I'm, my, I need a haircut. I need to shave. I, I've been, <laughs> yeah, three weeks. So we did Colonel Con. Then I went down to Florida to do some jujitsu competition stuff. And then last week was vacation. So I'm kind of getting some, <laughs> some my bearings back. As you know, work's been a little interesting. Um, the last, uh, since I came back, um, yeah, it's been uh, a lot going on, and uh, yeah, man, it's it's been busy. But um, yeah, happy to be back. Happy to be in a routine again. Like that's the the worst thing I think about. I love so you won't hear me complain about travel, especially after the last uh, couple years. Uh, and then, um, sorry, someone's dropping something off my house. But uh, yeah, the last couple years, uh, obviously can't go anywhere so couldn't go anywhere so it's nice to be back on the road so i'm not complaining that's for sure but it is nice to be back in a routine so uh yeah and colonel con was super fun did we um did we talk much about i can't even remember i think i know we we probably talked about it a little bit but it was it was amazing to be back in person and so i'm excited for loco moco as well there at the end of june um and i know we have some other stuff that we're looking at in terms of training folks so yeah it's good which is like kind of i guess leads to our first it's not an article it's more of like a twitter thread um that yes uh, yeah let me post it up there i can i hope everybody else has been doing well hopefully some folks got because i know spring break for at least on the east coast uh you know a lot of people have had their spring break so hopefully the people watching got a nice break too we're able to get out there well, okay, so this Twitter Twitter thread, Twitter, oh, man, I can't talk today either. It's this, mm-hmm. this is how it's going today. All right, so this this treadle, 
this Twitter thread, right? Um, from Infosec AU, uh, basically is talking about doing offensive security source code review, right? He's been doing it for a long time. He's found a whole bunch of uh, CVEs and, you know, higher critical vulnerabilities, stuff that's been used to exploit various systems. Um, and it's what, like, you know, I don't know, something like 10 different thoughts that he has there. Um, but I did want to call out how similar it is to what we've been teaching people, right? Just some of the points that he makes, um, right? Like the first point that he makes is don't give up, right? If you spent a few days looking at a code base and you feel like giving up, take a short break and come back to it. There have been numerous times where I was about to give up, but persistence led to higher critical vulnerabilities, right? I, and I know that's one of the things that we always um, talk through, even before we get into the methodology of doing a code, code review, is being mm -hmm. kind to yourself and being realistic with like your attention span, your ability to concentrate, your ability to actually take you know, take a step away in order to come back to it. Um, and like, it's, it was just affirming to me to see that that's what other people do. It's not just you and I, but it's also, you know, other people that are finding vulnerabilities in code are doing it that same way. Mm -hmm. um, let's see. What else did he have in there? Uh, reverse engineered vendor patches. Um, yeah. Chaining vulnerabilities. How do you chain them? Find variants. Collaborate. That was the other one. Number seven, collaborate with other hackers. Um, right. The, the whole idea of um, you're looking at a code base, what, the, what attacks um, or threats are associated with that code base are going to differ based on who you talk to. So what I come up with, it is obviously going to be different than what you come up with. Right. Um, yeah. What else? What else stuck I out to you there? Yeah. Well, you know, we, we do something similar. So when we, we talk about our source code review methodology, we talk about when you um, map your routes so you can list out all of the routes that exist. Uh, typically, you can do this in you know, modern framework stacks. Either it's a built-in option or it's a library that you can install, plug in, and then you'll dump all the uh, routes. Uh, it depends on the, the framework. Obviously, you don't know if you're going to get the, the HTTP verbs that correspond to it or just how detailed that information would be. But you have a general list of the routes. But the other thing we talk about is map mapping authorization decorators or functions, whatever you want to call it. Um, mapping out what they do, what their purpose is and how they identify uh, actors, but also, um, and so, so that, that's, that side is what we talk about. And what uh, Shubs talks about here is mapping out pre-auth and post-auth routes yeah. uh, before choosing what to do a deeper dive into. Um, so just unpacking that, I think, not only we do, do we talk about, you know, finding authorization decorators, we also ask that you figure out where they're not applied and should be applied, right? So anytime we have routes that don't have anything applied or anytime we have routes that are clearly like administrative but don't have administrative decorators, just as an example, like that's something you list out, right? But um, I think we go um, a step, you know, kind of a step further there where... Um, uh, you know, here he's talking about just sort of like figuring out what you do a deeper dive into, but we'll, I think we follow a similar path, but I think when we're talking about what to dive deeper into, we have a concrete list of things that are like part of, part of your 
high priority routes, right? Like we've, we've talked about the, like the highest priority routes, medium priority routes, low priority routes, especially if you've got like 3000 routes and you can't do a source to sync trace on every single route, you have to kind of prioritize um, what you're going to do. And I think part of that is like, we know that authentic, we talked about this in our, in, at KernelCon, authentication authorization related um, endpoints, primarily authentication are always going to be something that you should check, right? And we have uh, other things that we'll recommend always being in that high priority route as, uh, or in the, the high priority routes that you're gonna do a source to sync on. So, um, and then it comes into like the business logic of what is the, the ma mapping out sort of the most critical risks that the organization uh, that's developed the application are concerned about, but then also like knowing now the applications mock-up and, and where the, the most likely to be vulnerable routes are that map to that critical you know, if you do this and you're able to get to that, then we're really concerned and kind of coupling those together. Um, so like, anyways, I guess what I'm saying is like, it's hard in a tweet to get, to get all of what I just said out there. So mm -hmm. I agree with the, the, the third out of 10 uh, thing there, but I'm just kind of expanding upon how we kind of look at that or how that works into our process, but it's the same kind of concept. Yep. What about you? Um, was there anything, you know, no, really I, I, to you? No, it was right. Like I, I remember, well, when I initially pulled up that thread right, that really stuck out to me, the, the routing, right. Like how we go through the process. I, I mean, he doesn't necessarily have it as, as defined as the methodology that we throw out there. Right. Um, but all the points that he makes are things that we've tried to incorporate into it, right? Um, whether that is talking to people, whether that is taking a break, whether that's being realistic with yourself, um, like using other resources and other CVEs and topics on how to like, how to go about identifying issues and, you know, familiarizing yourself with the code base, creating some sort of mental model or um, even like a, you know, notes about the application and how it's structured, how the activities happen, like all of that helps identify those vulnerabilities. Nothing is guaranteed when you're looking at those code bases, right? That's, that's the other thing, right? It, you know, he talks about stepping away and coming back to it. Just because you spend the time on it doesn't mean that you're going to find a critical or a high vulnerability. But the, the better that you know the code base, the more time you spend in it, the more likely it is that you are going to find something. So... I think that's the only thing that I disagreed with. I didn't, I didn't really love about this thread. That was the only thing. I mean, it's, there's some good points in here. I just, the, 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 the one thing that's that, that, and I, this could be out of context, but they said some code bases can be really large. So take notes if necessary. Yeah. I, notes are a non-negotiable for me and for the team that I manage. It's not something that's uh, an option. It's not like, Oh, you can pretty much, retain all of this information in a short period of time and then um, have an effective code review. It's like, no, note taking is the process. That is the methodology. That is the only way to co co coherently keep track of all of the little things and all the little details that you, you're going to come across. So again, I don't mean to be, you know, like I think this is overall, there's a lot of good things, but that's the only thing that kind of stuck with me is like, yeah, uh, I, I could I, be taking that out of context. Might have meant like um, in addition. Well, I don't know, but I, you have to take notes. There's no that's like you you can't convince me that you don't need to take notes like you. Absolutely. Yeah. Anyways, I, I mean, I think 
coming at it right like the way that he frames this as offensive secure code review right mm-hmm. is oh i'm i'm a bug bounty researcher and i'm just digging into these random like patches and other things looking for exploits um but I, yeah, I don't know how, like, I don't know how I'd keep things straight, like building a mental model of code without some sort of notes. Um, also knowing exactly where I found X, Y, and Z, because how many times do you fuzz something or do you uh, like, you know, th- those large code bases, just going back to a code snippet, if I don't have the notes from where that code snippet is, it's going to take me twice to three times as long to go back and find something that I previously saw if I didn't take notes about it, right? Um, so, so I'm with you there, right? That's, that's kind of the, I, but it, I mean, maybe it's his process, right? Like he just digs in, he identifies some things and then moves through it, but yeah, we'll have to see. To be honest with you, the most impactful bug bounty researcher submissions are usually, um, ones that took a lot of time to understand the context of an application and how it's, you know, basically the underpinnings of its authorization and how the different actors, actor types rather should be able to do like what they, what the expectations of the application are for those actors and uh, you know, the business logic and all of these things that they've really taken the time to get a detailed comprehensive view of the application. And then they can find the, the little ways to, you know, the anti patterns as we call them, it's easier to identify those anti patterns. Once you have a comprehensive view of the application Instead, you know, trying to do whack-a-mole, like look for like, I don't know. All right. It's uh, got system commands or here's the way to do native raw SQL queries or here's, you know, the most here's the CVEs for this web framework. Like that's not that's usually not where I see um, any of the most impactful stuff coming through on our program right now. I'm sure that there that is not that's not to say that those can't be effective tools with especially an immature application uh something newer i'm sure you can find some some stuff there pretty easily you know but if you're talking about a mature application especially um which is usually the point at which people should be running a bug bounty program is should be a more mature application that's like no you got to really know the application well and good luck if you're you know especially if you because you mentioned offensive and, and doing it from a bug bounty perspective well, as a bug bounty researcher, you're going to be looking at a lot of different types of applications. So how the hell are you going to keep that all in your head? I mean, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's an, anyways, but yeah, I think overall though, I agree with a lot of this stuff. Um, and talking to others, this is the one thing that we, again, we highly encourage, you know, he mentions basically like uh, somewhere in here, um, talking, basically talking with others to, to sort of, uh, the, you should, uh, sorry let me um, give me one moment here to find the exact wording uh yeah here we go collaborate with other hackers i've pulled in my team uh countless times to work together on exploits and enterprise software fresh perspectives knowledge and absolutely so fresh perspectives knowledge and experience can complete an exploit chain absolutely but it also can make you think of risks that you weren't previously thinking about and we talked about this but i'll just re- reiterate it we ran an experiment at work person uh, went to three different um, AppSec folks and asked to brainstorm and nobody had the same uh, attacks uh, or risks rather for the application and things that you should look at. Now, 
that shows exactly what what this is speaking to is that the diversity of thought really does have you know an impact on expanding what you might be looking for and so you should solicit help from others yeah yep i mean everybody's experience is different right and that's what it always goes back to is you know what you consider to be a risk is is not it might line up, but it might not always be the same as what I consider to be a risk or the avenues that I'm exploring in my head because of what I've seen, right? Everybody's experience is different. Um, yeah. Cool. But if you want to learn more about code review, come you know, join our uh, Slack channel, right? Yeah. Anyway, I'll stop pushing the course right now. <laughs> shilling our... Uh... Shilling the course. Yeah. <laughs> reverse engineer vendor patches to learn about exploitation techniques that you may not have come across. That's, um, sorry, I know we're about to get off this topic, but I, I just, I thought about that. And that was something fun that we, we were doing whenever like a new CV would come out for a while there. Um, which was, we would show on this channel, us reverse engineering a CV, uh, mm -hmm. and then the CV patch and then figuring out what the, where the actual hole was. And that is actually kind of fun, um, and helpful. I don't know how, you know, I don't know how useful it always is, but it's fun. <laughs> yeah. I, it's I like binary patches are one thing, right? Like, is there, it, that's a lot more, or it's difficult to actually, um, I, I, yeah, to read binary, uh, you know, you've got to be fairly, you know, fairly knowledgeable about x86 and uh, you know other things right like yeah to, to read a binary patch but uh, any open source patches are super interesting right just doing that code comparison and i think that's what we've done on the, the podcast in the past to see exactly why some of those have been exploited so i like yeah if you've got one if you're listening and you have an exploit that you're wondering how it actually occurred and want us to take a look at it. We're more than game to do that. Um, you know, outside of the after dark episodes and everything else, like we'd love to pull something like that up and just take a stab at it. Um, if you have a CVE that you want us to take a, take a look at, but cool. All right. Well, anything else on that, Ken, before we jump over to something else? Oh, <laughs> uh, no, no. I just, uh, yeah. No, yeah, I don't. I think it was. I think it was a good uh, thread. I just think Twitter is a very difficult uh, platform to get all of your thoughts out. So, um, yeah. I think within the, you know, limitations. Well, I did. That, this is a pretty good list. Yeah, yeah, and I did throw up like our blog post on Secure Code Review, right? That has links to you know us talking about the process, and you know, it, it's probably a little easier in a blog post to enumerate that out. But you're right, like. In 250 characters, make a point, move on. I guess we could do a, you know, a mega thread on the secure code review pro framework, right? Um, yeah. Anyway. This is interesting, though. Sorry. Uh, I The one part of this thread in the replies, it was like, good advice. Do you use special a special app to keep your mappings and notes? These days I use OneNote, but still not as fast as my writing in it on taped A3 papers for the workflows. He put, I have, Shub said, I have ADHD, so my notes are a thousand sublime text tabs, LOL. But listen, this is why I say notes are so important, because especially if you've got ADHD, uh, this is incredibly important for keeping you focused and not going down rabbit holes. Otherwise, that's the first thing you do. You start seeing something interesting, you just go down the rabbit hole because you don't you, you don't keep a note that's like, hey, this might be interesting, come back to it later. 
you know, you just go down that and then you might've lost two days to whatever you were looking at. But anyways, yeah, I think this is a, I could, I could keep going on. I could keep going on here reading these replies. And this and this is why this is why Ken is no longer on Twitter. Yeah, this is why I don't check. Which, yeah. by the way, sorry if you reached out on Twitter. I did see like I have a bunch of messages, so I'll uh, try to reply to those. I didn't. I didn't realize. Uh, yeah, because I don't open <laughs> Twitter much. It's a little infuriating sometimes. So, yes, Anyways. yes, it, yes uh, it is. Let's see. I was just looking at this request smuggling flaw in Apple's bounty program, but we can talk about the, uh, anyway, if you had another topic, um, what was it going back to our chat here? No, there's a bunch that we have there. There's like the, Oh, the red Lil stuff. I, I, I I wanted your take on this. I mean, it looks like this is maintained by check marks or whatever. Right. Again, this Mm -hmm. goes back to NPM, right? So if you want to, you have that posted somewhere. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'm not sure which one because it might actually be more. Uh, this might actually be more helpful. The, the the Medium article that they link off from their oh, yeah. main GitHub repository, which is here. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of different places you can look. I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, our team was actually one of our teams was actually directly involved in, in this. Um, so there's details mm-hmm. that, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll keep it pretty much to what this article discusses uh, here. Okay. Sorry. I'm, I'm getting a lot of feedback from something. Um, yeah. So I don't know, like basically this is another supply chain attack. Um if I re- I'm trying to read back through this to remember the details, but if I remember correctly, it was mostly about um, changing the name to be somewhat close to an original package. Let me look here. Yeah. Uh, look more deeply since the server is listening. Check blah, blah blah. Package name picking at the first, but we were able to. Oh yeah, yeah. This is where they were targeting Azure developers, so they were. Um, uh, so erasing the scope part at Azure in the instance or replacing with a similar string such as Azure hyphen and doing their best effort in publishing non. Right. So the naming convention was very close to what would, you know, normally be like at Azure forward slash whatever. Um, and now that we have a deeper understanding of technology stuff. Uh, so uh, sorry, man, I'm trying to catch up here. Um, no, you're fine. I mean, if you go to that Red Lily website, right, like it lists a bunch of packages that have been like that, that are currently available. You know, I'm sure you guys are analyzing and they're going to get shut down oh, yeah. on NPM. Well, that's the thing, too. Like they don't. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. I, I, I mean, you know, if you're going to be a good citizen and call these out because of their analysis of those packages, I'm like, why aren't you just like reporting them as malware so that. NPM can take them down, right? Like, I, I don't know if you're working with these guys at all, right? Like, but that's that's my initial thought is, okay, you're trying to be good about this, but who, like, what NPM developer is going to go to redlily.info and look to see whether or not a package is malicious, right? Uh, yeah. Well, I think part of the the, the reason this, this was so effective is that, you know, the attacker was able to create accounts in an automated fashion. And there have been some OTP introduced like 
OTP validation introduced. Um, but they're talking about in this uh, article, basically there, there are ways of getting around that to automate the account creation. Um, yeah. So, well, it looks like they're doing OTP email via SMTP. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is, I mean, that's usually pretty easy to automate. Um, yeah, that's basically what it is. So it's renaming of packages um, to look like something similar to the existing Azure libraries and then doing an account, automated account creation to, you know, obviously be an NPM publisher and distribute that, those packages. Uh, and they use the generation of an access token in their settings page um, to disable the OTP challenge in order to publish the package. Um, so they, and this is when I say they, this is, these are the researchers that are doing this to uncover sort of like, you know, how did, how did this happen? How, how was this done? Um, and then well, okay, they had that, some interesting, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that like, I'm, I'm trying to look up these packages on NPM. Like I know when we started talking about it, they were available, but they're not anymore. Right. They're all in security holding now. So the process is working on the back end, right? To eliminate it's like 1,500 freaking packages. And I got to tell you, it is like a high bar to actually get something removed. Um, mm-hmm. It just is, right? Um, and it should be, I think. Uh, I think that's a good policy in general is to, to be very picky about when you remove things. Um, you know, it, it's not just because of like from a security perspective. It's, a lot of it's about like there there this is this is a weird world that you live in when you when you host content where you will you know you're going to get takedown requests right you're going to get highly opinionated somewhat political um sort of requests in uh and you can't just like jump on every single one of those and and you have to you have to create pretty specific boundaries on when you're able to remove a package um you know as i'm learning more and more from us having delve we are diving deeper and deeper into the package management ecosystem. Um, man, I got to tell you, it's, it's, it's far more complex than people think. It's, it's, you know, it's very easy to abuse these things. It's very difficult to prevent that abuse. Um, yeah. And it's very interesting work as well. Well, yeah, I, I like what I'm seeing is some of those packages are removed. It looks like the ones that are closer named, like they're trying to, you know, name confusion. Those ones are getting removed. Some of those that are not um, aren't as like those aren't being removed quite as or as quickly for some reason. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Like I keep digging into the actual like NPM de- details around those packages. Um, but it's, yeah, I mean, it's quite interesting that they identified kind of this, these patterns um, of how the abuse is happening. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, it's all like indicators of almost like in, indicators of compromise or indicators of malware based on the package name, based on, you know, a few other things. It's simple machine learning is what it boils down to, but it's useful. So Hmm. Yeah, I'm just um, trying to figure out why. Da, da, da. 
Uh, I see. No, they were just talking about their C2C. There was a lot of like around their C2C kind of infrastructure there. That's why I was like, what are they talking about? It took me a minute to realize that's what they're um, talking about. So yeah. Okay. So this is really all it is creating the NPM accounts, uh, dealing with the email OTP challenges, publishing those NPM packages and finding candidate packages names under the targeted yep. scope. Yeah. That's basically what it is. And the good, I like the good thing, the, the bad thing and good thing I, depending on what side you're looking at this from is that if you're able to obviously if you're able to target like Azure developer, people developing things for Azure, then you're like able to obviously get on Azure infrastructure. And, you know, from there, depending on how everything is configured, the world can be your oyster. It could be very, very interesting. So, um, yeah. And I, I, like I said, our team dealt with this, but, um, yeah, it's, we've moved on there's been several me- this is a several thing. other Every issues freaking day <laughs> there are people trying to abuse these ecosystems that's why i say like people have no if you don't work in it you don't realize like how brutal it really is yeah but, well and i mean you know that so these you know this research team has has identified one path for actually doing this and again, I, I always go back to that, like how many new packages are showing up on the packages managers on a daily basis, the size of the teams that are protecting it, how the automated tools work behind the scenes. Um, but then also like there's only so much that defenders can do. So, you know, automating a system to bypass those, the 2FHX, the, you know, everything else that's going into it to create an account, to publish a package, and then having to do the analysis on the new packages that are coming in, whether they are closely named to another package, whether they contain malware, right? This is not a, it's not a trivial process and it's not, uh, it's not easy, right? By any stretch, because you want to allow good packages in right it's not like you can just freeze an environment and say you don't want any development on it and so the, the this whole process becomes it's just so muddy to actually yeah, to identify those malicious packages pull them out and it's great that we have external research teams that are doing it it's great that you guys have like internal teams on it as well but there's always going to be an avenue for it um for especially for the unique ones, the single one-off attacks, the targeted attacks. It's just like writing a phishing email. We still haven't solved that. And how many years have we been dealing with it? Oh man, look. So yeah, yes. Many, many, many years. Yes. And this is interesting too. Like um, some of these, this they actually caught check, check marks uh, had also detected this stuff in the PyPy uh ecosystem so it looks like it's it's kind of a a cross-platform like it's not just one package manager ecosystem here this is interesting um oh yeah pi pi yeah man but there are some strings you can search for so you definitely look at those articles if you're interested in uh making sure (laughs) they have the burp collaborator address in the in the uh uh, so yeah, there's some strings to search for. They give you, uh, to, to like, you know, be obviously those are going to change, but yeah, they got, they got some strings in there you can look for. Yeah. It's interesting, man. Um, but again, it's, it's just sort of, a another way to abuse dependency confusion. Yeah. 
Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, when it comes down to it, that's just a, it's confused deputy. It's confused. Well, not confused deputy, but it's yeah, dependency confusion. A developer logs in, searches for a package, sees one that has a you know, whatever right, like, and just uses it without doing any research. Because we've all done that, right? Like, it's yeah, yeah, and yeah maybe deadlines, we shouldn't. Things. Yeah, yep. Deadlines, functionality, you push it out, and then all of a sudden you're going to get punished for it. Uh, basically, what it boils down to. But it was an interesting one, like an interesting thread for sure. Um, yeah. We'll see what else happens there, right? I, I, it seems like we're talking about package and package managers and supply chain attacks quite often on the podcast um, as the research has been coming up and yeah, there's been more and more activity in that space. I'm pretty sure that was one of our predictions for 2022 as it was, Ken. Yeah. Was yep. that these attacks were going to get worse and we were going to see more focus on them. So, yeah. yeah. Although I'd rather see that than um, the protest where. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. Did we you know did I mean? we talk about that at all? I can't remember <sighs> if we did. <laughs> yeah, we I think did. we did. The NPM <laughs> color stuff. And then yeah. everybody's judgmental, right? I think that was the, that was what it came down to was everybody's got their take on how to secure these environments, but they're not the ones that are actually running them, right? No. Yeah. Mm, da, da, da. Yeah. I'm also like confused by this. I've been trying to read on this, like uh, read up on this. Um, Apple paid out $36,000 bug bounty for HTTP request smuggling flaws on core web apps. Try- but Drop like, it in there. Let's let's see what it is. Like, I don't know. If I guess I'm... the only part I'm confused. I'm trying to clarify here is it says the bug hunter, a 20 year old hacker going by the online moniker Stealthy, said, "No, that's not what I wanted." Uh, no, a security researcher claims they netted thirty six thousand dollars in bug bounties. I'm like, why does it say claim? Like, you know, Apple is it paid. did it not? Um, something like a medium blog post. Okay, here's the blog post. With a little bit more information, hopefully. Yeah. Apple uh, open the boon. So poke around and discover the exploit. Do they not? Does Apple not have like disclosure? I can't remember. Um, they they do, but it can be quite a while, right? Like if I remember yeah. right, they're like their bug bounty program. Um, it can be up to a, like they won't actually disclose until things are fixed, right? So you may get a credit in a patch note, um, but they won't actually say what it is outside of a security patch until it's all been resolved. And then, but that like th- this this makes me question whether or not they're actually going to get paid out for it, or if they're going to come at, come back after them, because usually there's some sort of um, disclosure period where you're not supposed to talk about it once you report it back to them. Right. Well, you're, yeah, but you know what though? I got to tell you, cause I've been on that conversation before. I've been in that conversation before many times where well, I shouldn't say many times, multiple times um, where we, it, the, you, so the one thing you never want to do is like revoke a payment or not, yeah. you know, follow through if someone discloses it, that's like the worst thing you could do. What you, what you can do is you can ask um, if there's something disclosed in it that you're not ready for because you haven't patched yet. You can always ask for the researcher to, you know, hey, can you make that art medium allows you to make things private. So you can make it private for a little bit and then, re, you know, it, but 
you don't want to try and come after anybody. You don't want to, I mean, listen, it, it's on you to fix it. So if, if anything, usually the response should be, let's work quicker to fix this because now it's out there on the internet. And then also yeah. if you can work with the researcher to make it private. However, at that, at no point, because you're, you're going to create reputational damage that is like pretty significant for your bug bounty program. And also these researchers are really excited about what they do. And I totally understand both sides. Like I get that they want to release this stuff. And sometimes it can be frustrating for like looking at it from the lens of a bug bounty researcher. Sometimes this stuff can be pretty frustrating because, you know, it, especially like this stealthy person, right? They're 20 years old. So they're relatively inexperienced. And that is not at all some sort of me saying, oh, you know, they're not. No, they're probably really obviously smart person, not not a just inexperienced. If you're 20, you're inexperienced. Sorry. That's just the reality. Right. So, yep. um, in that case, you know, it's, it's, if you've never, if you're a little bit inexperienced, you're never going to have that situation where you really understand all the goings ons of an engineering group and all that, like all the different data that's used to make decisions and what all you have to think about when you make any changes whatsoever, right? So sometimes it can take a while to fix these things. Like I can't speak to this particular incident. Um, who knows? They might be using some sort of, it could be like some reverse proxy thing. It could be, a, who knows? Like I don't, whatever, right? So it might take time to actually fix. So I see it from the lens of somebody who's maybe a little less experienced, like, hey, this shouldn't take 90 days to fix, unfortunately. And it ideally shouldn't, but unfortunately, sometimes things can take 30, 60, 90 days, whatever to get fixed. And sometimes the attackers are like, all right, or not attackers, that's researchers, sorry. Researchers are like, yeah, that's not good enough. I want to put this out there on the internet and yada, yada, yada. So, uh, and as an internal team, you can not all, you can't always give all the details of what's going on. Sometimes what happens is, you know, you're on the back end and you start looking into what they, um, what they found and you realize, oh, wow, like this happens all the time where something someone discovered isn't like they discovered the, the maybe even the least significant variant of that vulnerability, but it exists somewhere, many places elsewhere or several places elsewhere. And those can be even worse. Or you can have a really systemic issue and you're like, crap, like it's not a single fix for this one thing you identified. It actually exists in multiple places and there's going to be some more holistic fix required that's a longer term thing. So, um, but you can't communicate that, right? Because now you're going to tell somebody that, hey, we're vulnerable in way more significant ways in like five other areas. And, you know, you yeah. can't give all that stuff away. So I see both sides of it. It's a very frustrating thing for both, both parties. But the worst thing you could do is just revoke payment for, for someone well, it, stuff early. Yeah, but it doesn't even look like, like if you get to the end of his Medium post, it seems like they've already remediated the issue, right? right? Like they worked yeah, with yeah. him and like, it's it's what you would expect and what you would hope would happen in most of these situations is they're like, oh crap, yeah, you're, you're right. Here's some payout and we're going to go fix that and then validate it, right? And so, but, which is the normal flow that we expect nowadays. I Like I still go back to what a change that is from when you and I started and reporting vulnerabilities to people and being accused of, you know, like, yeah. Anyway, like it, it, we've come a long way. That's all I, yeah. My yeah, gray, well, gray, I mean, gray I, hairs. Are, I was, yeah. Yeah. Showing well, up. no, I mean, I'm looking at Stealthy's uh, Twitter page and the first thing that pops up is looking for an open redirect on account.epicgames.com. 
yeah. me rolling to clap. This is not something we would have done, dude. Like, this no. is not something we would have done at the beginning of our career. Hell no. Like, there's no way I go on Twitter and tweet that out, but I get it. And this isn't a criticism. This is just, this is the different landscape than when we started. It's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we had IRC and there were some back channels and different people you would talk to, but it was only trusted individuals that you'd even talk to about any of this stuff. And now it's and even all public. Then you'd be all like, KG. Yeah, exactly. You wouldn't, you wouldn't like, I'm looking for one specific to this domain. Please help me. Yeah, no. No, no, yeah. no, no. <laughs> right? Anyway. No. Yeah, this is, it's no. wild to me. That's why I'm smiling. It's wild to yeah. me that you can just it go is. on Twitter and be like, oh, I'm looking for an open redirect to finish my my exploitation my exploit chain on. yeah exactly <laughs> like amazing <laughs> what a different world <laughs> so actually i want to i don't know it. if clients would be too happy about that if i just started broadcasting out on twitter hey guys yeah, yeah I'm, I'm looking for an exploit on you know corpdomain.com yeah, like no let's, tell us a real yeah. client name seth yeah exactly <laughs> i'm sure that's gonna go over well I'm pretty sure my NDAs are like, it would prohibit me from talking about any of that, but yeah, they're <laughs> yeah. My lawyer would be too happy. Right. So no, yeah. Uh, I, I would imagine not. <laughs> no, that's pretty crazy though. But the request smuggling it, let's getting back to the actual vulnerability itself. Um, it's interesting. I could I, bypass I, I, access control rules on a directory located at forward slash internal. Originally, a directory mm -hmm. was forbidden, but using a smuggled request, anyone could discover content in that directory. So that's interesting. Is that, I guess the question is, is that returning the actual contents then, or is that um, enumerate, is that an enumeration volume? Because obviously an enumeration volume versus an ACL volume is like different. different yeah. Altogether. So. I mean, it seems yeah. to be, um, well, it seems to be ACL, like getting to that in internal directory. Yeah. I don't know. I, yeah, I, I would yeah, imagine it's, it's cool. not that because $12,000 yeah. is not a lot of, I mean, it sounds like a lot of money, but $12,000 per bug is, for us, that's like, I think like a medium bug or something. It's not even like super high risk or maybe I could, because we have like medium high critical. Critical yeah. is like, I don't know. It's a, 20,000 or maybe more um, high is between, I think, 15 to 20 or something. I can't remember. We have a bug bounty team now, so they know this more than I do. Um, but I think medium can go as high as like 10 or possibly 12,000. So I don't know. I don't know what Apple's pay scale is, but 12,000 doesn't feel like it's too great. Of It's interesting, but I'm not sure that it's allowing like what it's allowing be exported my smuggle path is static docs because uh, a redirect works there very quickly i started receiving the requests of live production users that's bad yeah um, well yeah i mean it's the it's the whole chaining of those different requests and how it's happening and uh, it's a, it, those are interesting attacks right like all the transfer encoding um content length those those http vulnerabilities that that whole class that um what's his bucket that james kettle has come up with right is a, a very interesting stuff because it, it's just confusion on the proxies from a proxy's perspective and yeah the smuggling that goes on the amount of well, data that can come out of it is super interesting yeah, the queue poisoning is interesting too because, like, obviously, the whole part of this distributed load balance system is it queues messages for like response, and then it's it's sort of like uh, dictates, you know, 
based off of who sent a request, you then decide where to send that response and it's in a queue and they're using queue poisoning to disrupt that queue so that it doesn't know who to send that to. So now what I think is interesting is if I'm thinking about this right, then you could not, not just the researcher, but all of the users using that would then start getting random responses that don't belong to them because the queue is disrupted. It belongs to other users. So it would seem to me that it would be difficult to control that without unintentionally affecting other users. Yeah. Yeah. It, oh, I'm sure that's what happened, right? In this case is there's probably quite a bit of availability um, issues for users that were trying to access those sites legitimately because the second that that queue gets messed up, you're getting responses for other users. He's getting responses for you. You know, it's just going to be, it, it's a huge mess until that resets. Um, mm. Yeah. Um, cool. Do you want to talk through that, that anymore? Or should we jump to something else? I, I did notice something else. there, there was the one that we, I posted in the Slack channel a little while ago, the not get bleed, which was basically people putting their passwords into Email oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember this? That's... Did you remember that? Did you see that one? Not, not from your post. Yeah, I mean, I, I do remember you posting that, but no, I, I saw this firsthand. So I dealt with this before that article came out. I'm sure. Yeah, people have. put stuff in places you don't expect. Well, I mean, dude, I, well, I can't go into all the details, but I've seen a lot. <laughs> Lately, it's been people putting credentials in places that don't even make sense, honestly, that don't even. Not more than just get, but yeah. here's, here's, yeah, here, here's here's yeah. my uh, you know zip code. I'm gonna put my password in there. Yeah, exactly. Right, and so then, yes, and then it's like now we have data we don't want. It's funny too because as much as I give you crap about like uh, you know auditing um, the auditing section of our course and how important logging is, man, it, like that's when you couple mistakes like this. And then you 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 couple that with, you know, where and what's getting logged. You can start to get a full picture of how scary it is when people accidentally enter credentials into the wrong places. Well, like, so part of the problem that you've got here with this freeform, like freeform passwords especially, is that they don't match a specific, uh, you don't know as GitHub, right, or as a provider, you don't what, know what the password actually is. Because you're not like, especially if you're following proper security protocols, you're hashing the password using a, an expensive, a, you know, PBKDF2 or one of the adaptive hashing algorithms. So you don't know what the password is. You can't actually do a check for the user's passwords in these freeform fields like you can for some of the AWS keys and like other provider keys because, you know, they always take a specific form, Right. Um, so like, it's easy enough for a researcher to go in and realize, oh, people are probably putting in their passwords to get log, right. Or to like some of these different, you know, free form mechanisms. And I can search for that, but as GitHub, uh, like, I don't have a lot of indicators for that. I, like, all I know is there's, you know, okay, there's a weird string that somebody put in here, whether or not that's a password is, it's not necessarily on you to discover that and notify them because the user it's like, it's bad use, right? It, that's all that it boils down to. It's bad use. Yeah. I've... 
no comment. I can't. No comment. But, but, but I like I like what you said there. But it is not necessarily my reality. Yeah. So, uh, or our reality. But no, no. I mean, this is the thing. I think it's interesting. They show. Um, yeah, obviously they're showing GitHub and GitHub Enterprise examples here. They're even showing <laughs> searching the API for. Um, yeah. passwords um which is interesting but yeah no people we've 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 seen this where people are you know accidentally putting stuff in git logs that they shouldn't um you know in, including credentials and you know it's it's actually interesting too when you think about how uh signing works too um god you know what i'm gonna back off this a little bit what what, okay. what i'll say is that uh um, yes, I, I wish we would not have to worry about, uh, sorry if the noise is really bad. I got some people working in here, as I told you earlier. So sorry if I'm getting a lot of background noise. Um, but no, yeah, it, it's not much else I can really say there. Um, okay. Well, when you can say more about it, then we'll talk through it. Yeah. I, I, it was just like, I, I'm with you on the, well, obviously I'm with you on the auditing aspect, right? Like the more that you, you put sensitive content in places where it does not belong, uh, the wider that you open up yourself to exploitation from an application perspective, from a platform platform perspective, you, you need to know what's in those different, uh, in those different resources, in those different fields, any social platform, um, right? Like, you know, those, those passwords get leaked out, right? Like I even think about things like Slack, Discord, right? Like, you know, you, you go, you walk up to your computer, you forget that your like watch or whatever unlocks the screen, you type in your password, hit enter. And all of a sudden I've sent Ken my password because I just didn't realize that my screen was already unlocked when I went to, to enter in the password. Right. So I understand on both sides, like how it actually happens. Um, but your traditional internet user isn't necessarily going to go change their password when something like that happens. And they use that password across, you know, 50 different sites. Um, yeah. Yeah. Password reuse, password protection, even though it shouldn't be on providers heads is. And so like, they've got to think about it a lot more than, than you do necessarily as a developer, but as a developer, you should be thinking about that. What happens when a password gets exposed? How does it actually get rotated? All that kind of stuff. I will say this, it's another thing to, to add to our check. So in part of our checklist is, Hey, when you're, you know, doing a source code review, look at the Git log, uh, for interesting things. We talk about like C serve security, like literally keywords you can search for when you grab the Git log to see like when something was introduced or if it was like a fix for some SQL injection, which creates a pattern that gives you a place to look for other patterns or anti patterns, you know, but this is an added this is one more thing we can add to our checklist of things we'll search keywords we'll search for in the Git log. It's funny too, because I was looking at Behema and it's got a little, you know, when I did the, the author search, it's got a, uh, like a HTML comment here. It's like, uh, adding certificate authority file option for GitHub really GitLab releases, uh, instead of the author, um, yeah, field. So anyways, it's, yeah, it's pretty, pretty interesting. So, Yep. Yep. People drop stuff in there all the time, right? That's the, the wonderful thing about it. Oh, I don't know. Whatever you want to put. Yeah. No, but it's cool. So. Yep. 
Um, no, it's cool. That's all. Yeah, it's cool. It's cool, man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what else to say. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll get off that then. Um, let's see. Should we review one more before we call it today? Did you actually know any, much about the... Um... Oh, man. Dude, I just did like a... Never mind. I, I was searching Behemoth for other stuff. Anyways, uh, so did you actually read up on the Utah bit there with privacy... Um, I read through the article. I knew it was happening. I was surprised to actually see it pop up. Um, so on portswigger.net, uh, like the Daily Swig, they they put out that there's new legislation coming out of Utah of all places about the so a Utah Consumer Privacy Act, which in general, privacy acts I'm a, you know I'm in favor of. Um, like they, I, I mean they they make life safer for most people right um enforces privacy restrictions on content on data um and like the california has always had one of these or it's had one for a while the california privacy rights act um which came out a couple of years ago and it, this is similar to that right but there are some Part of the problem when you're starting to enforce all these privacy acts and it's in all these different places are the regulations, the onus is on the providers to actually adhere to those acts in order to do business in these different places. But it's also difficult because you have to apply different rules to the data that you have as a developer, as an organization, based on where that data is coming from. So if you have data on a Utah consumer, you may have to do different things with that data than you do with someone that's in the EU because of GDPR or is in California because of the you know, CPRA. And it looks like there's a couple others, right? The Virginia, the CPA. Um, and I yeah, like it's, I, I don't know, like I, th this is it. Like initially when this popped up, I was like, oh crap, what what's going on that Daily Swig is actually mentioning Utah, which is, you know, the state that I happen to reside in right now, because usually it's not necessarily a good thing um, if, if Utah finds itself in the news, just just based on you know, experience. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, sorry. But Utah. sorry, Utah. But it, it's true. Right. Like you, you know, anybody else that lives here that's listening knows that as well. Um the issue is that those tighter controls, those options that are now enforced or will be enforced in Utah, don't necessarily align with what comes out of the federal government, what comes out of California, what comes out of other places. It just makes it more expensive for an organization to do business here, which also means there's a chance that we're not going to have the same level of interaction with some of these businesses because they don't want to. Like jumping through those hoops becomes so expensive that organizations will backtrack and will not provide the same service level to you to consumers in Utah in these places, which I get from a pure business perspective, but I also like, it's unfortunate, right? Like uh, that, that it's come to that, that we don't have a, a strict set of regulations that apply across the board. I don't know. I mean, yeah, what's your I mean, take on that sort of stuff? Yeah. I mean, it's pretty basic stuff, right? Like under the law, sensitive that includes data revealing racial or ethnic origin, yeah. religious beliefs, sexual orientation, citizenship, immigration status. 
information regarding medical history, mental or physical health condition. I mean, sites that are the, the only one thing here that could be a gotcha, because like for all this other stuff they list, like these are pretty specific use cases. You're not giving this information typically away unless like, you, you know, you, you're going to know that you're giving it away. And a company should be very aware if they probably are already following some due diligence, to be honest with you, if they're handling, especially like biometric data, but that can get a little weird, I guess, if you think about it with uh, some of the ways that we're moving with uh, authentication, but for like mental and physical health, medical history, religious beliefs, things like that. Well, I guess that could get nuanced religious beliefs. But anyways, I'm, yeah. Yeah, the, the one that's interesting is geolocation data, I think, uh, the, the most interesting to me, just because that's a gotcha that I think could be accidentally done wrong um, yeah. fairly easily. Yeah. Uh, well, so and, and, it, it, and with, yeah, yeah, with mobile apps nowadays, right, like geolocation data is all over the place, right? Um, or you right. start talking about Apple AirTags, right? Like, okay. How does it apply to something like that that is giving geolocation information based on triangulation of other devices that are also available? But you know whether or not that is allowed by the person that is tracking. It's it just, yeah, yeah, and like your your you know per your uh, I don't know Datadog or your uh, I don't know outsourced cloud hosted Splunk instance or whatever you might be using to log data could be it. collecting this information and storing it and processing it. And you didn't think about that, you know, I mean, cause what do we usually want to know the what, where, when, and how, uh, with, with logging, right? Like that's how we do our, if it's ever needed to go back through a forensics investigation, um, or even if it's just for troubleshooting purposes, those are the, that's the information you need to know. And the, where and who part of that's pretty important when it comes to logging. So I could see that being, you know, something that they, they have to prepare for. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it could be a got, gotchas, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. I, I mean, and I'm sure there will be, I, I think we're going to see more and more of these types of bills pop up. Um, Cause it seems mm -hmm. to be, they're trying to cover gaps, right. In organizations that collect data in these different states, in these different places. So, right, like, yeah, you've got HIPAA that already covers, you know, health insurance providers or health providers. You've got um, financial, you know, regulations that you know, that cover that aspect. But then like that personally, that, those, that location information, the personally identifiable information, that PII um, is being stored by other companies. So you start talking about ad networks, you start talking about, like just any other, you know, app provider that has that sort of information, um, you as a consumer should have the right to know what those companies collect about you and the right to say, hey, I don't want you to collect that. Right. Um, and so I think that's where it's happening is that we're trying to cover these gaps, but it's this piecemeal approach that's happening from the different states that I worry about. Um, that it, because it's putting the honest on all the companies to do that. Um, even though I want that as a consumer, that ability to be able to go in and say, hey, you know, Google, hey, you know, whoever, tell me what you know about me. Tell me tell me about the location information because I gave you the access to get to get at that data. What are you doing with it? What you know, what is it that you actually know about me? And can I delete that? Right. Um, 
but the organizations that are collecting that data, it is a, you've got to engineer for it. You've got to plan for it, that that's actually a, a right that the, your, your consumers have to get access to that information. As well. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I... I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm for it, but I'm also a little like reticent because I'm, I'm, I'm cautiously pessimistic about how it's actually going to roll out and how people are going to uh, you know, react to it on both sides. Dude, I'm trying to figure out. So, yeah. Sorry, I, I'm I, I came across this GitLab vulnerability um, <laughs> from a couple weeks ago. <laughs> Ken gave up on privacy. Now he's on to GitLab, right? No, I just happened to. Yeah, no, because go go for it. Right? <laughs> no, I just I, and it's not because like you know, I just happened to come across it. Um, because I was I was actually following up on that article, and then I happened to come upon this one, which is uh, or found like, another article, but I like did some googling, found this, so it's interesting. Like the OmniAuth. Apparently, with GitLab, a hard-coded password was set for accounts registered using an OmniAuth provider. And I'm trying to figure out how that could possibly be. Um, had you heard about this? Mm -mm. This one isn't one that I have looked at. I knew there was some GitLab stuff that was going on, but it wasn't stuff that I'd done research into. Yeah, there's like a bunch of stuff they re released patches for, but static passwords inadvertently set during OmniAuth-based registration. The only way... I guess if you register during that OmniAuth flow, like for those that aren't familiar, OmniAuth is just a library. Um, well, it's actually a set of libraries. There's They use strategies, or at least last time I looked, they're called strategies. So strategies could be like LDAP, strategy could be like OAuth, strategy could be like SAML, whatever. Um, or, or it could be like, I think even they have like, GitHub strategies, you know, like Twitter and single major single sign-on providers. But, but anyways, uh, so OmniAuth like provides all those different libraries and I've set up, and I know you have too, we've set up uh, both the OmniAuth client and OmniAuth provider side of that for OAuth multiple times. Yep. And uh, there is a, there is an option when you, I mean, first of all, all of the stuff can be overridden for the views, the models, the controllers, all that stuff can be overridden, obviously. Um, and then you can customize as you would want, but I think don't, one thing I could see is like dirt, maybe they, for testing purpose purposes during registration had like written in a hard coded password so that all of the, the details sent back by the client could then be used to create a, a record in the database, but maybe the password part of that was like a static field and I don't know, like I'd have to see the actual patch, but that's pretty, I'm looking at the CVE, um, 2022 hyphen 1162. Yeah. Um, I wonder where the patch is for that. Yeah. I'd be curious to see what, what the patch was for that because that's pretty interesting. Like I'm not sure how that happens. Um, yeah, that's more interesting than anything. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Weird. Yeah. I'm trying to find that article on it because, like, the, the links. Well, to, to see me. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I was trying to find even the issues, right, on GitLab. The ones that are linked from the CVE don't actually exist, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's like, I want to see the patch here. Like, hold on, I'm going farther down the arc. Maybe it'll show at the bottom here. Uh, 2022. Script to identify potentially impacted user that password automatically set question mark. So there's like a Boolean value it looks like then in the database that um, says password automatically set. Um, random password that originally set when creating Okay, a false value in the user password automatically set column means that the user had overwritten the random password that was originally set when creating the user VM. OmniAuth method. Double check these accounts to ensure that this change was intentional, not the result of exploitation. Out of an abundance of caution, it's recommended to reset the password for all users returned by the script. Yeah, so it's probably during that registration flow that instead of, for some reason, they're like, well, I, yeah. I, I mean, what it, what it sounds like to me is during the registration flow, um, instead of generating a random password, somehow they were using a static value that yeah, that's what when I'm the thinking, user was yeah. created, right? Um, and so if the user didn't go in and change it, it would maintain that static value and you could authenticating using that. Uh, yeah, which I, I mean, you know, those kind of edge cases happen all the time, right? Like we know that looking at code, but it is a fairly critical one. It'd be interesting. It would be interesting to see the full patch there. I found it. Here you go. So the register has an article explaining it. All right. So here's what it says. Um, it says it appears from these or from the changed files, the password.rb module generated a fake strong password for testing. Figured it was for testing. By concatenating one two three QWE capital QWE bang at pound with a number of zeros equal to the difference of the user dot password length dot max, which is user defined, and a default length which is hard coded with a value of twelve. Huh. So really, you could just enumerate a few zeros and boom, you're 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 in there. Um, less Sweet. than 12, right? So yeah. that's what yep. it seems like, right? So uh, it would be, well, I guess if the difference of the password length max was like 80, it could be a bunch of, I don't know. But either way, that's not a super hard, um, wait, so that, if an that's... to accept passwords of no more than 21 characters, it looks like an account takeover attack on the GitLab installation could use the default password of like, I don't know, 10 zeros or whatever those taxes accounts created via, or no. It's math. It's basic math. Nine, right? It should be nine. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So uh, anyways, cool. Yeah. That's hilarious. Um, Lee bad and sad, <laughs> but it happens. And yeah, I get it. So these changed files, let me go to the link there. Uh, here's the changed files. Um, but like, you know, I'm not throwing shade because, hey, don't do that because you're nobody's perfect. I, I but I am curious. Ah, okay, I see. So, right, interesting. Here's the change. So, if we go, down, let me go down to password.rb. Oh, yeah, you can see that's exactly what it was. Um, test default. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, QW, QW. 
at bang. Minus default length. Awesome. Yeah. And so the people I can actually see what I'm looking at here. Um, let me share this just real quick. <laughs> Tests are hard, right? Oh, I can't. I can't. I guess for whatever reason, when I update it, I have to reset Chrome to be able to access this. Okay. But um, yeah, I don't know. Like it's basically just go to that last link uh, that's that's submitted. You can see the diff on all these files and you can see what was actually deleted. So this module user returned fake strong password for tests. I wonder though how the actual like in production, how the actual, how that file actually, or how that function actually got invoked, you know? Mm -hmm. That shouldn't be something that's just invoked. So that password confirmation... Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Right? Like, it, yeah. I mean, somehow it's in the group seed password test default, but that's in. Yeah, because those aren't under the tasks though, or under the tests. That's that's partially why. Like, it's just they've they've dropped test defaults into. Yeah, like the specs and other places. So instead of only using those in the test cases, they're actually using them as they're rolling out different registration and different like seeding, at least from what I, that, what that changed files looks like. Yeah. The seeding part is, is the, probably the, the, the area I'm like, we're, Oh wait, no, here we go. Oh dude, here's the actual, if you look at lib, GitLab auth, Oh, underscore auth user.rb that is not a spec file and what it has on lines 242 or had on lines 242 and 243 are password with the value of GitLab, GitLab, GitLab password test default 21 and then the same for the password confirmation yep and that was on line 24 so let me look at that view that file and see what that's a part of on line 240 so what function is that a part of? It's part of the user attributes. Uh, if creating da, 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 da. So that would have been, oh yeah, that's exactly what it was. So when the user attributes are taken from that uh, auth hash that's passed back by the um, provider, um, the, uh, um, client looks to be storing um, in, or was storing instead of the auth hash password that was like sent back, it was actually doing that um, with, or maybe I have the relationship backwards here, but in any case, either way, um, when that hash is received, it's, it, it wasn't, it was just calling that like, and I don't know why you would do that, but it was calling that test, uh, method that generates that predictable password instead of the actual password from the auth hash. Yeah. Yeah. We need to get blame here, right? That's no, I'm teasing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yep. Sorry. Like I, this is, I know I'm totally sidetracked and we're over on time, but I just thought that that's super interesting. So here's the file also for those that are following along and want to know what I'm looking at. Um, just go down to line um, 240. Mm -hmm. 
243. You'll see they now have auth underscore hash hash dot password, but that was actually before the um, yeah the vulnerable predictable test, password generator the test default. Tests. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So that's pretty interesting. And I wonder if, and this is where I say, like, I, I do question it could have just been a um, situation where they had temporarily overwritten that to do to do some testing and to validate that it's working and then totally forgot to remove it later. That's I've seen that happen. That happened at Living Social. We actually had our CTO, uh, his credentials were hard coded into the code base during some testing and then they pushed the changes to prod. And then whenever somebody would sign in, they would be logged in as our CTO with obviously a lot more permissions they should than they should be. And that was online for like a day before anyone realized what was going on or at least half a day or something. So, hmm. yeah. Yep. It happens. Yep. It's not like shit yeah. happens for sure. <laughs> so. well, sweet. All right. Well, good that's times. yeah. Good times. Yeah. Um, at some point we are going to do another after dark episode. We've got like more vault word and stuff that you and I need to get into. Right. Yeah. Um, but um, otherwise, right. Like we'll be back next week. We've got a couple of guests that we do need to schedule. I know we keep saying that, but we will get some of them on. I think we're going to have Jimmy Nesta on again. Um, you know, he came on a long time ago. He was one of our first guests. I'm pretty sure Jimmy Mesta was. Um, yes. But you know, he's been doing quite a bit, so it'd be good to have him back. Um, and then there's a few others that we knew that we will queue up. Um, we'll let you know, but if you have anyone that you would like to see us talk to, or you think would be interesting, jump into our Slack channel, let us know, or hit us up on Twitter or wherever else. And we'll respond. And, yep. but otherwise, um, thanks everybody for joining today. Um, we will be back next week and yeah. That's all I got, Ken. From you? <laughs> no, yeah. Like I think next week I want to dig into some code um, a bit more. Um, but yeah, and uh, okay, yeah, excited, excited, yeah. man. I'm, I'm, I'm just happy to be back. Yeah, and like as much as you know, I enjoyed traveling because we haven't been able to do that. Like three weeks back to back consecutively is a lot. So it's it's nice to be back. I can actually start working with Aaron to uh, schedule some guests and stuff. So yeah, yep. good stuff. Good stuff. All good things. Oh, we do have new swag. Um, or I've got you? more t-shirts. Yes, I have more t-shirts. We just picked them up. Um, so good. if you would like one, you're going to have to find us someplace or you're going to have to jump in and talk to us on Slack. But we we are willing to send those out to listeners. So jump on in and tell us if you want something. And yeah. Anyway, thanks everybody for joining us today. And we will talk soon. Thanks, Rick. All right. All right. Bye. Bye.